Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. Now the opportunity to do the Pasha. I'm going to do it today's uh, Pasha podcast being sponsored by the Raiden family and uh, the uh, Zavandina Raiden from Florida in honor of their parents, Alex and Eva, who are, uh, are what do you call it, are uh, in Baltimore. And in honor of the, I'm not going to say the number, I'm, I'm old-fashioned, I'm from Europe. In honor of their numerous great-grandchildren, uh, who who have moved and end up living in Baltimore from other place in the country as a big zechus. Uh, Seth's parents went through the war, they went through the Holocaust, and Baruch Hashem, they've Hazarim Bedim Babrina Yitzer, as they say, and they are uh, anyway. Thank God, everything is uh, is uh, turned out well for them in life uh, after what they've been through, and they should continue to have many more brachas and many more many more. Great grandchildren. Here said not grandchildren, great grandchildren. Amen. And now, let me uh, get down to talking about this parsha, which is, of course the story of Yaakov and Esau, isn't it? Uh, as we all know. Now, I like to think of Yaakov and Esau as archetypes, meaning in the broad symbolic sense. I mean, there's a Yaakov and Esau, of course, but why does it assume great uh, significance uh, in history as we understand it? Let me say this. In Jewish thought, in rabbinic thought, Aesop has become identified with Rome, with the Western culture. I'm not exactly sure why, but that's what happened. And there were the stories of Yaakov Aesop all the way long ago, 2,000 years ago, when the Jews were ruled by the Roman Empire. Already at that time, if you look in the Chazal, they are, in those days, interpreting the story of Yaakov and Aesop in the context of the Jews and the Romans. Um, just take a look at the very interesting, um, very interesting Midrashim, on uh, uh, you know the two kids fighting each other in the belly, as we all know the story, and um, as you may know, it says why Yisroset so Abonim we care about. They're very fascinating midrash uh, on that whole on that whole uh, parsha where uh, the the two twins are fighting with each other. And uh, by the way, it says why Yisroset so. For those of you who are nerds like me and are into Curry issues, dictic things, and things like that. You got a lot in this parsha of these funny situations which kind of violate the rules of dictic. And I'm referring to uh, uh, a situation where you have chatapatak under a consonant. And I know many of you will will uh, roll your eyes. But um, yeah, like I say, for some of us, it's interesting. Are these mistakes in the Chumash text? Meaning, do we have bad girsas? Uh because really, like a chatapat or chatasegel, you know, we have the ah with the two dots next to it or something like that. It's usually only supposed to go for certain vowels. Alpha, ches, and I. It's not to go for regular letters. And you have a whole bunch of them in this week's parsha. You have, you have elsewhere, but you have over here. And the only reason I'm mentioning is I have a student, a married guy, lives in Israel, Donnie Rose. Uh, he's a very smart fellow. And he's got some big job with one of those uh, Microsoft type situations or some other company like that. And he has a podcast. I'll give a shout out. I think it's called Sof Pasuk. Uh, I don't know how to look these things up, 
But I just wrote them the other day for the heck of it. I said, you know, this week you can talk about all these chatapatas uh, under Vayis Rotsetsu and Sadeh and all that. And he did, <laughs> right? So if you're the type that cares about such questions and you're willing to listen to a five-minute podcast, that's all, uh, then go to Sof Pasuk and uh, you can, you'll, you'll, you'll be uh, enlightened. Let's put it that way. I'm very proud of him. But now to get on to our Parsha, so the Midrashim, now these are written long ago, time to Chazal. Uh, talk about Zemater Tzivayishozed, that, you know, already in the belly, they're fighting, it's a primeval struggle. It's, it's before they're even born, right? And uh, later on, Shnei Gaim Bevitnech, which is very fascinating, it's a Snue Gaim Bevitnech, two hated nations, you know, like Shin and Sin, like the Litvox, you know? I'm talking about the Medrash Rabbah now. And it says, Snue Gaim Bevitnech, that two hated nations because two master races, basically. All the nations, it says, hate uh, Rome, hate Esau, and all the nations hate Yaakov. And so, you see, long ago, the Jews, who were helpless at the time they were writing the Medrash, they were a conquered people, are viewing themselves as a superior people, and were taken in a superior way, sort of unexpectedly by the Romans with the rise of Christianity. And there is the story I wanted to excuse me, mention today, because, because um, when we look at Western Civ, uh, the, the current fashion is uh, the current fashion is called Judeo-Christian civilization. Now, I, I better keep my mouth shut. Since there are a lot of Muslims in the country now, pretty soon that'll be not PC. And you can't call Judeo-Christian anymore. It have to call Judeo-Christian, Islamic, uh, you know, Navajo, and whatever. But until now, uh, we've always referred to it that way, ever since World War II. It used to be called Christian civilization, Western civilization, called Christian civilization. And then after this Holocaust, we called Judeo-Christian civilization. And that term denotes the fact that what you and I call modern Western culture is indeed in a certain mixture, a certain funny way of coming together of uh, Judaism and um, Hellenism or Westernism or Romanism. Uh, this is a classic theme in English literature, by the way. Matthew Arnold uh, wrote a famous essay on that back in the 19th century. Of course, he was more Christian or anything like that. And I have a wonderful book. I'm an idiosyncratic person. And uh, I have this uh, book I always keep around. Uh, you can probably buy it for a penny on the internet from Norman Bentwich called Hellenism, which he published in 1919 in the Jewish Publication Society. And he didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit too much, but he knew very, he was very well educated, British Jew in classics. And uh, he quotes Butcher, who quotes some famous pope, the, uh, the sharp contrast of the sculptor's plan show the two primal paths our race has trod. Hellas, meaning Greece, nurse of man, complete as men, Judea, pregnant with the living God. So in other words, the antithesis and the synthesis and so forth of Hellenism and Hebraism. Okay? And uh, a lot of baloney's been written in this, but there's also a lot of non-baloney. And so what in literature and culture has been called uh, Roman Judea, uh, Greece, like Hanukkah's coming up, um, Athens and Jerusalem, uh, you know, each one contributing to the formation of Western culture, which has become the dominant culture in the last couple hundred years. That's where all the action is happening. All the non-Western culture people are coming to the West to learn it and then bringing their own country. It's not, not a native uh, Chinese uh, science. They're taking the Western science and doing very well with it. So uh, you look back to these uh, elements. In Yiddishkeit, instead of using the term Hebraism and Hellenism, 
or Jew Judaism in Rome, or something like that. We call it Yaakov and Esav. <laughs> That's my whole point where I'm getting to. We call it Yaakov and Esav, okay? And you heard the expression, Halacha Moshe Mizina, Esav, son of the Yaakov. These are ways of saying, they're not referring to the original Esav, they're referring to the West. Uh, Christianity, possibly, the Western culture, the Greek and Roman culture, and its uh, you know heirs uh, and successors, that sort of thing. In which case, you view the story of Yaakov and Esav, not stem by Mice and the Velterine, and even from a, not simply from a very narrow Judaic perspective, of course, that is what we often do, but from a broader perspective, if I'm mistaken, maybe Sam Stranville Hirsch might allude to this, uh, because, of course, he was very well educated in the Greek and Roman stuff, you know, he didn't go to yeshiva, really, he went to uh, college mainly, I mean, went a little bit to yeshiva, but uh, primarily, you know, he's very well grounded in the classics, and Yaakov and Esau, that's what it boils down to. Now, I'll tell you what's useful about thinking it in that terms. The, there are always strange parts of every parsha, and in our parsha, let's face it, what's this shtick about the birthright? Uh, he sells it to him, he steals it from him, he deceives the father, Esau wants a birthright, the Bechorah, as we call it, right? I mean, is it really true because he was hungry for some soup, therefore he's, you know, he sold him the Bechorah, can you, can you sell something like that so easily? After all, if you're the firstborn, you're firstborn. It's clear we're not simply talking about a Pishnayim situation. Yaakov wouldn't twist himself like a pretzel just to get a Pishnayim from his father's property. By the time Yaakov and Esau grow up, each one of them is loaded on his own. Correct? Yaakov Avinu did not make his money from Yitzhak. He made his money the hard way on his own with that bum Lavan, okay? Our famous Zaidi, right? We're all related, we're all descended from Lavan. Am I right or am I wrong? We're all come from Lavan, true? Right? So, um, you know, Yaakov earned his own money, and by the time he meets Esau, as we all know later in the two parshas away, both of them are millionaires. Right? Yeshli Cole. We're, we're, we're fine. So, what's with the Bechorah? So you'll say, well, it's a something spiritual, you know, spiritual. But what does that exactly mean? And then, why would Esau want a spiritual? You know, I mean, if if we identify the Bechorah with like, Torah, Avodah Hashem, Ruchnius, what does Esau want to Bechal? <laughs> you know, what, what, what does he care if Yaakov takes it, if Esau doesn't want that, you, you, you understand what I'm saying? And whatever terrorists you come up with is always, eh, 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 at least to me, I've seen all, all kind of explanations, and uh, it never made much impression on me. I'm aware of them. It doesn't work. Now, on the other hand, from a historicist perspective, which is natural to someone, someone such as myself, there is a very fascinating um, side to this, I would submit. And that is that if we're dealing with uh, like Hazal called them, the two master races, Esau will eventually turn into Rome, which will dominate the world in Gashmias, but Yaakov will turn into Judaism, which will dominate the world in the Ruchnias. Isn't that weird? Dominate the world. Now you tell me, what do you mean? What do you mean you'll dominate the world in Ruchnias? What does that mean? Uh, eventually, I'm going to answer you. Eventually, the monotheistic idea will triumph over the others. That is what happened in Rome, in Greece, in Western Civ. Now, it triumphed in a weird way uh, with the rise of Christianity. And Christianity assumed maybe 50 different forms, maybe 100. And the one that you and I are familiar with, if you're familiar with this whatsoever, is simply the one that emerged after power struggles. Uh, for example, not that you need a, a, a Shia in Hilchus Christianity, but already from the very early, early time, the 4th century, they're trying to figure out, is Yashka God or is he 
uh, not really God? And if he is, how is he part of God? And these kind of questions, which seem to a Jew to be somewhat weird, were taken very seriously. And there were the Arians and the Catholics, and they fought each other, and the Council of Nicaea, and this and that and the other. So there's various forms of, of there are various attempts by these Goyim, who were pagans, to stick Yaakov into Esau, like in the belly, and come up with an acceptable form of monotheism. One thing they all have in common is none of them were 100% uh, um, comfortable with a full-blown Judaism. You understand? Saying there's only God, and uh, Yashka and all the others are just, you know, like uh, maybe prophets, or I don't know what, you know, bit players. Uh, it, 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 they, they couldn't handle that. You understand? They couldn't handle that. As far as I know, only the Unitarians are like that. Right? The Unitarians are like the, the ones who are very close to Judaism in that sense. Right? Although the other Christians refer to them like Reformed Jews. I used to have a professor in college many, many, many moons ago in Hopkins. There's a black guy, which was unusual at that time because he's an old man. He had been a major in the United States Army and Intelligence Corps in World War II. There weren't many of those. So he must have been an A-plus, A-plus guy to break through the racism at that time in the 1940s. And uh, I was friendly with him. He's an interesting guy. And he had all these jokes. And one of them was, the KKK went and to a Jewish house, and they, this is what he told the class, and they uh, burned a uh, mug and dove in. And they went to a Catholic house, and on the wall, that, uh, on the lawn, they burned a big cross. And they went to a Unitarian house, and they burned on the lawn a big question mark. And he thought that's very funny, because by them, it's like a form of Judaism, uh, and so forth. Now, uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is because uh, there's already uh, indications at the very beginning that both Yaakov and Esav in the belly, listen closely, are striving for dominance. They're twins. God arranged it that they should both be born together, obviously, and then they have a twin destiny. And together, Yaakov and Esav, between the two of them, are going to father Western Civ. Um, this amazing European culture, with all the good and the bad. And, uh, I mean, like, here we are, doing, think about what I'm about to tell you. Here we are in the corona, assuming that it's not a Chinese invention. And uh, if this was a, hundred, a couple hundred years ago, we just sit there and, 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 and people would die, and you hope you're not one of them. We're putting all of our efforts, I mean, all of our faith, into a science, into Western culture. You know, to come up with a, what do you call it, a uh, vaccine, an elixir, who knows? You see what I'm saying? This is how the Western Civ uh, progressed and developed. Now, if Yaakov and Esau are the progenitors, that means that, unlike Yaakov, no, Judaism by itself, pure Judaism is going to be Yoshev Ohalim. But Yaakov and Esau together is going to be more complicated. The question from day one was, who will dominate the other? The two of them together will be the formative influences on the great Western civilization, where the Jews will live. But, Will it be an ace of civilization dominated by Yaakov-type ideas? Or perhaps the other way around? Will it be a Yaakov civilization dominated by ace of ideas? By his roadsitsu, Avonim Bekirba. They're fighting over dominance long ago, and uh, we call this the Bechorah. Notice, it's assumed the form, when they were alive, of who's going to get the Baruch from Yitzhak, knows who's going to dominate who. And remember, the mother didn't know what was going on, 
And she went, Vatel Hashem, and what was she told? She was told an oracle. She was told something that is uh, unclear, impossible to to understand. Rav Yavotzair. Right? Rav Yavotzair. Which, if you know Hebrew, I've said it many times, can go either way. <laughs> because if you don't have the word S in there, like Breshi Bohim, S you have the S, you don't know what the object is. You get what I'm saying? Rav Yavotzair can mean the Rav, the older one will serve the younger one, or Rav Yavotzair. It is the, the older one who the younger one will serve. It's like in Hebrew, if somebody says, Shimon Hore Gitzvak, Again, Shimon Hore Gitzvah. That can be translated two ways. I'm talking about the Hebrew rules. Shimon is killing Yitzchak, or Shimon Hore Gitzvah. It is Shimon that Yitzchak is killing. That's exactly why in Chumash, the very first passage, say, Bereshit Himas says, Arts. If you didn't say, Arts, you could read it like this. Bereshit Bar Elohim Shemayim Arts. In the beginning, who created Elohim? Shemayim and Arts. You, you follow? That's the reason why we put these object prepositions in your S. Okay? So it didn't say Rabbi Yavod It said Rabbi Yavod So either, in other words, what he meant was like this. One will dominate the other. It's not clear. Or perhaps it means at different times in history, one will dominate the other. Another time in history, the other will dominate. So while the babies were still in the stomach, and they were already looking at the, uh, at the future, and the mother's worried, she's told it's going to be a very complicated relationship. I find this personally fascinating, right? Very, very uh, complicated uh, uh, relationship, and of course, Yitzchak growing up, he said, "I guess well, I'm going to have a, a bracha, uh, but who am I going to give it to?" And first, he wants to give it to Esav. So that sounds like Yaakov will be under the domination of Esav. That's weird. Now, I remember many years ago. I haven't looked at all these Chumash things in a long time. I just sit here and and talk. But I remember the Malbim, I think, or something had some formulation like I'm saying, something along these lines. Where Yitzhak hoped that, uh, you know, Esau will uh, use his power the right way, but you need both. You understand? And, uh, of course, and, and let me put it this way Yaakov, uh, uh, backed by Esau, would be a good combination. But Rivka, he says, if I, if I remember correctly, Rivka realized that no, Esau will just use the power in a bad way and will either hurt Yaakov or disregard him, and that'll be bad. And so, when they're looking for the Bechura, they're looking for something very fascinating. Who will be the guide of the other, the dominant force of the other, both of which being needed in the course of history? Now, um, one of the big problems we have today is the rise of a science without religious values. Okay, I would say that's among, it's up there among the number one problems. Uh, and so, for example, science cannot help but continue on the derech, of making a bigger, bigger bomb, smaller and smaller. So the way things are going, give it another 50 years or however long, it'll be possible for any idiot, Tom, Dick, and Harry, to, to put two things together, press a button, and blow up the world. Now it's counterintuitive that the science, with all of its progress, progressed to the point to make it possible to destroy the world. And if it, the world is destroyed through some idiot, then, you know, who's ever left, if anybody's left, will say like this, what price glory, what was the point of the science? The science is there to help man. You hear what I just said? The science is there to help man. No, that's a Yaakovort. <laughs> the Esavort is science is there because it's science. It should not be dominated by Yaakov. So if the world, I hate to use cliches, but if the science is, is, is guided by Torah values, 
They have to go spend their time on bigger bombs to look for cancer research. Yeah, something like that. That that kind of approach, right? End world hunger. What whatever your your cause is, you know, save the whales. But the point is, what will be the guide of the other? Now, in in modern science, which is untrammeled and has defined itself ever since the 18th century as being untrammeled by religion. It can't be dominated by religion because religion many times has its own problems and its own power issues. And that's why they tried to suppress Galileo and people like that, you know. Uh, but it's a conundrum uh, because uh, if you have no uh, guide, no religious or, or, or moral guide, the science runs amok, just like a Frankenstein. And we're just getting bigger and better, bigger and bigger, easier and easier to blow up bombs. Or, if not bombs, uh, you know, diseases. Let's assume for a second, just for argument's sake, the Chinese made the co the corona, or like they say. Let's just assume that's right. So, great. So with all our modern science, we've ended up with a business that I can now throw a thing out there and stop the world. It'll kill millions of people just like that. Is this progress? You know what I'm saying? It's regress. <laughs> it's not progress. But you say like this, but science can't help it. It's like Frankenstein. you got to go where you got to go. You can't tell a scientist. I'm serious now. can't tell a scientist, don't go here. Don't go down that road. Got to. If it's there, I got to follow what my curiosity takes me. Got to. So I would think that's the Asaph, you understand? Uh, the Yaakov is Yoshev Oholim. Yaakov sees, you know, limitations. Science and knowledge have to serve man. Uh, now, I realize it's a loaded question, you know, because service of man can be defined by people with ulterior motives. I do understand that. And that's often what's happened with religion, which usually becomes corrupt. Every religion becomes corrupt. Because of power and money issues. This is the way it goes. I repeat, every religion without exception. But um, having said that, we have Yaakov and Esav locked in permanent struggle. And each one's the antithesis of the other. And somehow or other, they got to combine, or else you end up with no Western, you have no progressive civilization. And uh, in economy, you and I are living in times in which what we call the Judeo-Christian civilization is falling apart, because, for just to give you one example of many, the institution of marriage has now, you know, been uh, completely overturned because of political correctness. And so, if that, that says a lot. If you're taking God out of the marriage equation, so to speak, uh, and you're simply saying it's like two people getting together, limitless possibilities suggest themselves, I'm sorry to say, and will continue to do so. And so it'll just get worse and worse. You understand? And this is what they're thinking about when they're battling over the Bechorah and Yaakov and Rivka are so afraid that Esau will become the dominant force uh, that they're willing to steal the, 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 the birthright. I, I, that's just an interesting story. Okay? Uh, there's no question in a lot of contemporary culture Esau is in charge. Okay? Uh, from Judaism, even from Christianity, it does not dominate of the world of ideas and the world of the scene, and the world of values, the world of values. Other things do. Now, um, is that good or is it bad? Is, 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 overall, it's bad. You see? Overall, it's bad. Because then you have simply the self, and uh, you have uh, selfish values. Let's put it that way. Selfish values. And this is one of the great uh, you know, battles of our time, battles of civilization. Uh, I'm not a philosopher, the way uh, Rabbi Sachs, who I spoke of the other day was, Jonathan Sachs, 
he used to speak about these things, if I remember correctly, in broader and more philosophical terms. It's not my cup of tea, but I'm not stupid. I see what's going on around me. I see the culture wars raging all the time. And I see, therefore, what we call the struggle between Yaakov and Esau. Okay? And, uh, indeed, you see the Esau forces and the Yaakov forces are hated. Isn't that interesting? They're hated. Uh, people, people do not like, they repel against the uh, raw force dominance of the Esau of every generation. But they also hate the Yaakov. <laughs> right? They also hate the Yaakov. Uh, all these people that are looking to change all the rules of how the sexes relate to each other, how all kind of other things relate to each other. They do not like the Yoshev Oholim. They don't like the fact, you know, somebody says, I want to stick within the tent and stick within the Dalai shall we say in the Torah. It's a, I'll say it again, it's a, it's a big uh, battle of ideas for our time. Many people who voted for Trump held their nose and did so because they saw this as expressing a vote on the culture issue. I realize it's a weird way, I understand that, but I'm convinced, I'm convinced, that's why a lot of people did it, because what the news and the others won't talk about is these uh, cultural issues, which represent a battle, you know, of a Yaakov and Esau type of uh, approach, uh, Yaakov and Esau. So this is how we, in Judaism, in the Torah, you know, refer to these uh, dual uh, forces, and uh, it is not clear how it works out, because when Yaakov ends up getting the, the, the bracha, as we all know from Yitzhak, Esav is fiercely resentful. You understand? I mean, how is Yaakov supposed to dominate Esav when Esav hates his guts and wants to kill him? That's just the interesting part. Right? By the time the story's over, the two twins, their relation is broken. Uh, Yaakov, of course, has to flee because Esav is already planning to kill everybody and take over. Uh, Yaakov won't come back for a long time. And uh, Asa will rule the roost. Consider well, I, you probably don't do this. Once this parsh is over, Siakov spends 20 some years far away. So who's left back home in Eretz Yisrael? You got Yitzhak, you got Rivka, you got that older couple, and you have Asa with his, with his many wives, Judith and uh, Judith and Basmas and the others. And they drove the, the parents crazy. They drove his parents crazy. And so, uh, what happens? Again, this is foreshadowing the future. Esau hates the fact that Yaakov got a primacy because we Jews believe that um, we were given a primacy. Not only when Yitzhak, uh, you know, gets to, gives the bracha to Yaakov under whatever pretense, but as this plays out later in history, when it is the children of Yitzhak who get the Torah in Harsina. That's the Bechorah. Basically, that's that's the way it unfolds, and we Jews are a tiny group left over from the ancient Middle East. None of the others are left over. You ain't got no Moab, Ammon, Edom, Aram, Midian. It's all gone. When I say gone, they don't exist anymore as identifiable groups. They probably blended into who knows what. And if they survive, if they survive, and um, but you got the Jews, <laughs> right? The, the, that, that's the leftover from that time. That's the leftover from that time. And therefore, you might say, the Jews should be like the Yazidis or something. You know, there's all these little sects that you find in the Middle East. And they're still running around. It's 10,000 here, it's 50,000 there. And they do their little thing. It's, it's like the Samaritans or whatever, you know. 
But that's not true. Uh, through funny circumstances, which God ordained, Yaakov emerged from the tent and became a very, very powerful force in history. The Jews with their ideas and their Bible spread through funny circumstances, but they spread. And who's the main person who spread the Jewish Bible with its basic values around the world? The answer is Esau. It was the Christians who, in their own way, adopted the Jewish Bible and then proceeded to carry it by force of arms and conquest and colonization around the world. I think the Bible is translated in every language, I believe. And I mean like thousands of languages and dialects. As the missionaries, I get it. But what are they doing? They're taking the story of Yaakov, Ish, Yoshev Oli, throughout the whole world, into the darkest Africa and the hottest uh, Siam and who knows where. And the whole world has learned. I'm not talking about the Muslims now. That's a different thing. I'm, that's a separate schmooze. I'm talking about Esau. I'm talking about the Christians. And they've uh, carried this story, Ad Kedekach, to just about everybody in the world. Sort of Abraham and Jerusalem and these kind of terms. I mean, uh, when I say everybody in the world, everybody in the world that has been in contact with Christianity has done so. So it turns out what Yaakov couldn't do, Esau did. But he did it in a screwball way. He did it in the Christian way, which truncated and uh, we would say, you know, twisted, uh, you know, the, 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 the Yaakov message and the Yaakov story. I mean, I get that. There you go, Rav Yavod Sa'ir. It goes back and forth. Or maybe Sa'ir Yavod Sarav, Or maybe both. Or Vayis Rotsetsu. They're, they're battling. It still goes on now. Right? I consider this to be, you know, a dominant theme uh, throughout history. And that's why it's so interesting. The Pasha says, Elu told us Yitzhak. What I just told you is the told us Yitzhak. <laughs> right? The foreshadowing of the major cultural battle, uh, you know, of Judaism and Asavism, if you want to call it that, for the next thousands of years, and it's not over yet, uh, it's not over yet, is uh, foreshadowed. That's the told us Yitzhak. That's the real leftover progeny and history of Yitzhak. That's what he has to show uh, for all the efforts. And uh, it's very fascinating that at the beginning of the parsha, Yitzhak and Rivka are childless, and they say that it was, uh, you know, he was suggested he should take another wife, a concubine, the others, and he wouldn't do it. Uh, that's very famous. He said, He said, Any children I'm having are going to are being through Rifko or none, or none at all. So he kind of forced the hand of God. Otherwise, one would imagine there'll be two women, each one have a baby. One mother would be uh, Esau's mother, and the other mother would be Yitzhak's mother. As happened with Avram. You know, Hugger had a baby, Sarah had a baby. This one went this way, that one went that way. Uh, and that seems to have been the plan. I only say that because Yitzhak davened against that plan. That's a chazal, it's not me. Like he said, I, you know, I'm not taking another wife. Uh, which is interesting. He was in love with her, you know. I'm not taking a, a, another wife. And therefore, instead of what the plan seemed to have been originally meant to be, which is that there should be one mother who has this baby and one who has this baby, it was the situation was forced that one mother should have both babies even though both babies are totally antithetical to the other. Right? So it's, it's like there would be a Yitzhak and a Yishmael in the womb of Sarah. Something like that, right? And uh, therefore they're intertwined. And the future of history, therefore, is going to be one of intertwining uh, with all the pluses and minuses of that. And we are still you know, working today, this, in, in history today, we're still wor- working to see how this plays out, how this works out. Uh, the Jewish people have always complained 
that the Christians took Judaism and messed it up. They don't have it right. Uh, they don't have it right. What's interesting is the Christians, of course, resent that. But every once in a while, you see, let me put it this way. They didn't destroy the Jews because they're always afraid. If, I know the history. Because, you know, maybe there's something to what the Jews are saying. You understand? Uh, they feel primordially this business that we were once in the same womb. <laughs> you understand? And uh, they don't know how to deal with it. And none of us does. And maybe Bakr Sayyam will be uh, clear. I would remind you, by the time the story's over, Yitzhak and Asa will get along. They will embrace and kiss and hug. Uh, and forget the Rashi that says he bit him. Pashim Shadis, they will embrace and kiss and hug. Which means that the original plan is possible, the two of them to cooperate. The assumption will be then that uh, Ravi Avod Sayyir, that uh, you know, the Asa will serve Yitzhak, meaning. Not serve, but he, he will allow himself to be guided by Yitzhak. That's a different thing than being serving. If I allow you to guide me, so you tell me when to use my strength, when to use my physical power, when to use all the, the energy that I have, and for the right Mahalach, then the human race would be a different story. And, uh, and we will call that Mashiach time. Anyway, that's just a thought or two that I always have whenever I come these last couple of years to Parshish Told. And with that, I bid you a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.